1: When I hear the words fake news, I can't help but hear them in Donald Trump's voice. His rally against it could lead you to think either it's a new issue or it's overblown nonsense. But although it's sometimes hard to imagine a Trumpless world, there was a time before him. And fake news very much existed then too. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and joining me to discuss this for The Bunker is Andy Tucker, a historian and journalist who teaches at Columbia University, who has charted the history of dodgy news reporting in her new book, Not Exactly Lying, Fake News and Fake Journalism in American History. Andy, thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Andy, what made you want to outline the history of fake news when I think most journalists would just like to pretend it's not a thing at all?
0: That's a great question. I think, though, that I've actually been writing this book all my life. I've always been interested in what I like to call conventions of truth-telling, how certain groups or institutions of people persuade other people that what they're telling them is the truth. And it occurred to me very early that you couldn't do that without also understanding the stuff that isn't the truth and how that works and what's so appealing about that. And I was I was somewhat surprised to discover that that is has been an issue in journalism from the very first newspaper ever published in the British American colonies.
1: Is a part of that then that the, the truth really is very much dependent on your perspective? So maybe there used to be a truth which was tied to religion, and now there is truth which is tied to science. And it, that all depends on the the power play and who is trying to convince you what's what the truth is. So, is fake news maybe hard to define because truth is hard to define, depending on the the time we're talking about.
0: Yes, and sometimes fake news feels absolutely true to the people who are who are trying to disseminate it. It's it's very difficult to understand the motivations often behind what's going on, what they're hoping to accomplish, how people are receiving it. People may listen to things that are fake news and believe it. They may listen to things that are presented as true news and say, nah, human beings and truth have always had a very complicated relationship.
1: Well, also, I mean, journalists, I think we forget are just human beings who are completely fallible. Also, and I think on both sides, journalists like to hold themselves up on a bit of a pedestal. And then the public likes to deride them in a way that they should get everything right all of the time as well. When it comes to fake news, do you think it's important to have that clarity between mistakes and also maybe journalists can be can be well meaningly duped? they can get things wrong because people lie to them. And then unfortunately, they become disseminations of lies. But that doesn't mean that that journalism is fake. Is it important to note that when we're defining what fake news is?
0: Yes, very much. I think the motive has a lot to do with how the fake news works and how we need to judge it. And as you say, journalists make mistakes all the time. I've been a journalist, I understand that I hate it, but it, it, it's sort of inevitable. But it's also... For instance, the reporting um, by many of the U.S. newspapers on the invasion of Iraq in 2003 has turned out in retrospect to be quite wrong, but was done with good intentions, with concerns about national morale, with concerns about spilling secrets about national security, with concerns about driving audiences away, all of those things that shouldn't count but do. Does it sometimes
1: depend on what journalists maybe aren't good at and what their priorities are at a time in terms of resources there? You know, the the reporting around Iraq maybe might have been much better if there had been more journalists looking into the thing. It's sometimes fake news. It's not a it's not deliberate thing that is done, it's more about misgivings and things that are omitted because of time, resources, priorities at that moment.
0: Omissions, yes, yeah. sins of omission can be equally consequential. But the limits on reporting, sometimes there are simply human limits on reporting. It's really hard to report on what's going on in Iraq for a Western journalist. It's hard for them to get into Iraq, it's hard for them to find sources, it's hard to figure out what the story is. But they don't like saying that, so sometimes they will present their their fragmented and, and preliminary findings in a way that carries too much weight.
1: In your book, you speak about fake news, but then also fake journalism. How would you define and note the difference between those two
0: things. I think fake journalism is much more dangerous. It's much more of a of a difficulty in in contemporary journalism. Fake news can can be information that's wrong and it can come over social media, it can come from your grandmother, it can come from mistakes. Fake journalism I think is a purposeful effort by organizations and entities acting as if they are credible journalistic organizations following traditional credible journalistic conventions, using the cover, using the credibility that has accrued to journalism over the decades of their efforts to be professional. And these fake journalism organizations present themselves as purveying nothing but objective, true, verified fact, when it's clearly driven by partisanship, hyperbole, efforts to mislead. I would call for instance Fox News is a fake journalism organization because it considers for years it called itself fair and balanced. It said that the mainstream news organizations were not were not objective. They were not truthful, but we Fox News we're the only ones who are fair and balanced. They used the language of objective journalism to allow their viewers and readers and listeners to accept it as verified vetted objective journalism. And while dismissing what mainstream journalists were doing as is, is wrong.
1: Isn't that sort of a uh, notion that the, the medium is the message? So something that I I hadn't actually picked up on before was, uh, I'd seen it, but I hadn't thought of a word for it, was pink slime journalism. Where it's these sort of websites pretending to be hyper-local news websites, and it's just complete clickbait nonsense, which I've personally never clicked on. I don't understand who does, but they must, people must, and they must make money through advertising. But is that a weird, weird catch 22 there that the legacy media organizations are putting stuff out that is fake, but then fake organizations are trying to pretend to be the legacy organizations because they're trusted. And then we get into a weird feedback loop where both ends of the spectrum have no credibility to masses of people.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what's going on, especially with the Pink Slime organizations. They are declaring themselves. If you look at at a lot of these, it's a vast network. They're all connected of very, very hyper-local news organizations that on their websites and on their pages say, this is vetted information, this is verified information, we're telling you only the truth. They are using the language of something like the BBC or the New York Times, while the BBC or the New York Times, more and more under pressure from many of their readers or listeners, are moving away from the standard of objectivity. Many consumers believe it's useless, it's impossible, it's a pointless exercise. So the New York Times is saying, well you know we we are all going to allow some of our subjectivity to show we're going to be transparent about our opinions that allows them to be dismissed by the pink slime newspapers that are saying we're telling you the truth and we are objective
1: yeah that transparency there so there's another term in your book i came across yellow journalism so previously there was this kind of openness around when you're reporting things which were rumor, or maybe it would be important if it were true. And newspapers were were happy to be transparent about that. Whereas I think you, if you do see that these days, it's quite derided or it's, it's hidden. I remember when I used to work at the Evening Standard, for example, if something wasn't a direct quote, you'd put it in singular quote marks to show that it was a paraphrased quote that someone had kind of said the thing, but they hadn't directly said the thing. You know, is that a problem then that the journalism has got to this point where it's defined so broadly and we don't accept that maybe people do want to be entertained by journalism and people do want gossip, people do want rumours and we should not take all the onus onto media organisations and put some of that back onto people? And did that used to be the case that the, the readers and the viewers were meant to be considered more active participants than they are now?
0: That was very much the shape of journalism in the 19th century in the United States, certainly, and and to a large extent in the UK as well. The idea was in the United States, in many places, local newspapers in the 19th century were about the only print matter that anybody had access to in small towns, often settlements in the West. So a newspaper served all sorts of purposes. It was filled with some news, but it also had, you know, jokes and tall tales and hoaxes. And I think readers knew exactly what they were getting, that some of it was true, some of it wasn't, and they could just figure out which was which and enjoy wrestling with, grappling with, engaging with the newspaper. It's almost gotten harder now when newspapers news organizations are committed to giving you nothing but the truth because if it fails to be the truth if it if it's incomplete if it's opinionated it really sticks out as as violating convention whereas as you say some people just go to news organizations and kinds of journalism for the pleasure of it. When the New York Times bought uh,
1: Wordle, I remember thinking it was really strange at the point. But when I was reading your book, I got to thinking, was that maybe a smart move? Because it means they don't have to do fun stuff in their news report. They don't have to entertain people with that because they can say, hey, go play Wordle on the website. And you used to buy newspapers. And in the newspaper, there would be horoscopes comic book strips there would be all these sorts of different things and now we don't buy news media as packages anymore we just get the separate things so we expect each separate bit to do more than it maybe should do so you know the new york times buying wordle is that actually quite astute from them that they've realized readers want to have fun you know should the new york times go and buy the onion next and just be like hey see you can get this you can get the crazy stories there if you like
0: That's a good point. The New York Times has been famous all its life for not having a comics page because they were way too serious for a comics page. The Washington Post or their competitor, that could have a comics page, but you know that just shows how trivial they are. And now I think you're right. Now you can disaggregate all of this stuff. If for the New York Times, you can subscribe to a dozen or more different newsletters that come out and they're about cooking and about fashion and crossword puzzles. So yeah, that you can look at the Times as a place to get your entertainment and not bother with anything else that the Times reports, if that's what you want to do.
1: In my first job in journalism, I used to write for some of the tabloid newspapers, which would get me much, much derided. Now I'm part of the North London liberal elite, but uh, we used to always get asked to sort of add colour to our stories and to do stuff like property prices or you describe a house exactly as it was. And what I found actually, and this is this maybe another problem when it comes to fake news, is that the the inaccuracies creep in on the trivial aspects. And that can actually be that. And then that can end up painting a much more misleading picture. And it's come because the journalist is just trying to throw in a little bit of nuance there. But if you get that wrong, that can really frame something incorrectly. Can it actually be much more sinister when it becomes wrong and actually come from an innocent place of just trying to change the reporting a little bit and to make it stand out?
0: Yeah, once the mistakes and the suspicions begin, they roll, they continue, you know, it's like rolling downhill and getting bigger and bigger. The credibility shreds as you look deeper into these, what began as very tiny, very trivial errors. And it's difficult to restore credibility when you've lost it. In the beginning of the 20th century is when many newspapers led by the New York Times really tried to make themselves professional, to distinguish themselves from the yellow press that was so fake, that was so filled with, with sensation and error and, and hoo-ha. So they made a real effort to say, we are going to be different. We are going to be objective. We are going to verify our facts. You can trust us. We give you all the news that's fit to print. We will not soil your breakfast cloth with you know stupid stuff, trivial stuff. But the more you, ex- you you claim that, the more you claim the high road like that, the harder you 'll fall if you make the kind of inevitable human mistakes that any human can do.
1: The name Pulitzer is always linked to me with really the the top highest echelons of quality journalism. Could you explain to me why that that wasn 't always the case historically?
0: Yeah, Joseph Pulitzer came to the United States from Hungary worked his way up through journalism, bought a fading newspaper in New York, and decided he was going to to pitch it to the masses of other immigrants like himself, filing into the New York City and other big cities. So he did it with a lot of sensationalism, with a lot of illustration, with a lot of, of inside stories about how you come and be a, a, a person, how you come to be an American. So a lot of it was service journalism, a lot of it was sensation, but he was also really interested in helping people understand what America was like, the idea that that if you're an immigrant, you have to come and assimilate was very was very profound. Then William Randolph Hearst, his arch rival, came along and they got into a competition that just drove each other in spirals of sensationalism that were really getting more and more embarrassing until Pulitzer finally thought, wait a minute, you know this is really not good, and pulled back a little and tried to reclaim his reputation by, for one thing, setting up the Columbia Journalism School, for another, trying to improve his journalism. So he's got an interesting reputation on on the one hand, as somebody who drove a really intensifying spiral of sensationalism. And on the other hand, as somebody who took journalism really seriously as a public service. Is that a catch
1: 22 we have there then that competition on one hand drives up standards because journalists feel like they can't get things wrong because there's always another outlet that people can go to if they lose trust in it. But what it also does is it seems to, throughout history, ramp up that need to want to boost your coverage to make it the most exciting it can be and i found it interesting in your book that is these sort of wars between publishers i feel like we're seeing again now in the in the information age just like it was then so is there a two-pronged issue there that on one side them vying for attention makes them want to make the best journalism but then it's also going to creep in that journalists are going to want to make the the most exciting journalism too
0: Yeah, yeah. A lot of what goes wrong in journalism comes out of of intense competition for positions that are similar the three cable news networks, three 24-7 cable networks in the United States, the main ones, MSNBC, Fox, and CNN. And they compete. They can never decide on which grounds they want to compete. But usually what I've seen most recently is, for instance, Fox and MSNBC compete against each other for the extreme ends of the political spectrum. So CNN steps back and says, we're different, we're going to be more objective. But that drives Fox and MSNBC often into, again, spirals of competition. They lose touch with the values that they claim in order to beat the other guy to get a better rating.
1: Looking back on the, the history of this, so there you say in the book that there was only ever one period where there was no fake news and it was when news stopped being printed. Has there really been no other golden era? Has it always been pretty much as bad as it is today forever?
0: People like to think there was a golden era. In part, because it's nice to think there was a golden era, but also because it allows them a basis for complaining about what's going on now. We don't need that basis, you know. Things, things, there, there's always been journalism that is stupid, ill-informed, mistaken. But there has also always been journalism that is trying its best, is doing really important, innovative, investigative work, is taking risks, and. You know, I don't want to catastrophize journalism by saying it's always been fake. It's always been stupid. Yes, there's always been a very large part of it that's been fake and stupid. But there's also been a part that most of the time tries to get it right and tries to to do, you know, do right by the public. When you were researching the book, what did you
1: find the, the most interesting bit of fake news that you came across? What do you think was the most kind of entertaining fake news story that you found?
0: Oh, that's a hard one. There's a lot of stuff going on with new kinds of technology, which we see, again, I find very resonant now because people are thinking, oh my God, artificial intelligence, AI, What? how's that going to change? What is it going to do? We went through the same things with the coming of photography. We went through the same things with the coming of motion pictures. Thomas Edison, the great motion picture pioneer in the United States, was doing all sorts of cute little films that were fun and entertaining and, you know, cats falling into into water, things like that. But then they they figured they had a chance to cover war for the first time when the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898. We're going to show you what's really like on the battlefield turned out that motion picture cameras were so big and clumsy that it was really difficult to follow a battle. You couldn't be on the battlefield. You would get shot. You would get in the way. So what Edison's filmmakers did was that they hired New Jersey National Guardsmen across the river from New York City, and they staged what looked like battles with, with smoke and fire and people throwing up their arms and killing over dead but it was all notoriously fake and it was presented as here we are in cuba you can see what's going on in cuba isn't this great
1: which tale of fake news do you think was the most egregious that you came across there as well what do you think did the most did the most damage and i mean i suppose i mean that in a more on a more societal level not so much that it damaged the credibility of the media but that actually had a real world impact through how fraudulent it was
0: oh my <laughs> Well, a lot of what goes on in wartime has consequences that are very profound. There is a sense among authorities and officials in wartime that you got to do what you got to do to make sure that the right side wins. And often the public agrees with that. The, you know, the public has a deep investment in war, too, especially wars where there is universal service or the draft. When fake news goes wrong, when, when, when journalism is faked in wartime, that's really bad. I think, though, one of the most egregious episodes was the CIA in the, in the Cold War world. After the war when there was terror that the Soviet Union was going to take over the world and impose communism everywhere there was an idea in the US government that anything we do to stop communism is okay so the CIA was establishing fake news bureaus was hiring real journalists to report undercover on on intelligence matters it was paying journalists to 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 report for them and in a way that really undermined a lot of faith in how journalism worked, and there were congressional hearings into this when, when journalists tried to, to, to put a stop to the CIA besmirching their name, and the CIA was completely unrepentant. Well, it said, we might as well use you. Why not? Because you're, you're there in a place where you can get information, and, and stopping worldwide communism is much more important. I think it did a lot of damage to the way people looked at journalism and trusted journalism.
1: Has it always been about that power dynamic then? For example, in the past, you know, you would say, don't ever pick a fight with someone who buys ink by the barrel. And at the end of the day, the the importance of if something is fake and it being called out really depends on who these people feel accountable to. And as you say, somewhere like the CIA can push propaganda And they don't, who do they feel accountable to? Why do they feel accountable to anyone? And is it that maybe as journalists, we put too much faith in the media as being this institution when really it's it's a vessel and it's a vessel that's been used by people who may, the media isn't beyond account, but the people using it might be.
0: That's an important point and a kind of depressing one, yeah. When the New York Times in 1896 started to, you know, declare itself professional, to distinguish itself from the yellow press. It had a sense, as as did some others, like the 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 Pulitzer's paper, it had a sense that if we as journalists stand up and insist that our colleague journalists also follow journalistic rules and and and, and standards, if we police them, if we require all journalists to skew to standards, then that will improve journalism and we'll all be fine. Well as you say, that's, that's not enough. You know, journalism can be manipulated so easily. Journalism can be undermined so easily. And journalism operates in an area where the stakes are very, very high. So yeah, it's, it's a little depressing and scary to acknowledge that there's, there are things that journalists can do, but there's only so much journalists can do.
1: This is a point that I think when I describe this to people, they think it's counterintuitive. But I believe that the best way to avoid being duped by fake news is to actually read a lot more news. Don't read less. Don't stop reading it. Read more and read it from more diverse sources and different sources. People are surprised when I'll say I read things in the sun occasionally because I think it's important for me to understand what has been printed in the sun, whether I agree with it or not. Do you have... Faith that people maybe will come to a point where they actually want to engage with the media again in the way they maybe did in the past? Or have we just moved beyond that point that people are, they're jaded by all this and they don't want to read any of it. They don't want to listen to any of it. They don't want to watch any of it. So we can't really move forward. And then what cuts through is the fake stuff cuts through to them.
0: Yeah. There is a whole area of communication studies now on news avoidance. There are so many people who choose, as you say, that I'm I'm sick of it. There's too much. I can't trust it. I can't trust any of it. Everything's lousy. I'm just not going to pay attention to the news at all. And that's a growing chunk of many populations. I agree with you that, that we all need to understand more about the news that's out there from organizations and institutions that we understand we won't believe, we won't trust. We need to see what, what kind of, of information is out there so that we can perhaps in our own lives do what we can to counter it. You know, the classic example being your uncle at the Thanksgiving table. Well, you you, you tell him that, that, you know, Dominion voting machines <laughs> were not rigged by Venezuelans and, and do your best there. Journalism often gets into extreme positions. It spirals up into into dreadfulness. And then there's usually something that happens that makes everybody stop and and draw back and say, wait a minute, we went too far. The rivalry between Pulitzer and Hearst in the early 20th century, late 19th century, the newspapers were understood to be sensational covering the Spanish-American War. And, you know, people didn't know what to do. And then finally, the Hearst paper said something about President McKinley was spineless and it wouldn't be so terrible if he were assassinated. And about a year later, he was assassinated and nobody argued that the assassin had been inspired by Hearst's paper to kill the president. He couldn't even read English. He was an immigrant from Serbia. But I think that was a moment when everybody stopped and said, wait a minute, we we've gone a little too far. And and both Hearst and Pulitzer realized they needed to clean up their act a little bit. And there have been other episodes like that where Things just get too far and are and 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 finally are raked in. The problem is I keep thinking when I wake up every morning now we've gone too far, now the counter attack is going to start and and it hasn't yet because we have so many different media. there's media so fragmented it's so easy for people to find only the thing that tells them what they want to hear, and of course they believe that. so we haven't gotten to that point yet
1: when you look at the American media landscape though do you have do you have any hope? There or do you look at it and think, you know what, this has been damaged to a point where it's it's damaged and it is where it is. You know, looking at what Tucker Carlson has left Fox News, but now he's just gonna set something else up and I'm sure he'll have millions of people watch him again. Do you have hope that we can we can ever hit that point again where
0: there's reset? I have to I have to have hope. I think it was a good thing that Fox News got pricked by the by the lawsuit that I think that says something to people who are willing to entertain an argument in their own heads. I think that they will be able to think differently about Fox. But I also You know, I teach at a journalism school, and every year we have students come, young people come who want to make a difference and believe that journalism can be a good thing and want to help inform the people and want to do a public service. And, you know, they won't always do it and they won't always get jobs in journalism. And some of them will feel, you know, pressured to sell out. But there's enough of them coming along every year, I think, that there's still hope. They still have the possibility of changing the world.
1: Andy, thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you. This was a pleasure.
1: Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me in the Bunker.
0: Good news.
1: And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.